please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode six of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today, we are excited to present a special episode of Allergy Talk. The current Allergy Watch issue covers articles from the American Board of Allergy and Immunology Continuous Assessment Program. Therefore, for the next two podcasts, we're going to interview experts in the field of allergy immunology. So if you have a topic you'd like to cover in a future podcast, please let us know at allergytalk, one word, at acaai.org. So welcome, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University and the co-host of Allergy Talk. I'm also an assistant editor of Allergy Watch, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Kalangara. Hi, this is Marion Kalangara, and I'm also an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. And we are very excited to have a guest on this off-allergy watch issue of Allergy Talk. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jennifer Chi. Tell us about yourself. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I think this is a great program. Uh, I am an assistant professor at Emory University, um, and today we're going to be talking about telemedicine and how uh, you can incorporate that into your potential allergy practice. So I'm going to be the first to admit that despite having worked with Jen for the last three years, I still don't know a lot about telemedicine, and uh, I actually don't know anyone else in our field who does telemedicine. How did you even get interested in this? Well, yeah, I mean, you are not um, alone in that. In fact, recently there's a JAMA article that came out um, earlier this year in January 2019 showing what subspecialties actually utilize telemedicine the most. And our field in allergy was dead last out of all the subspecialties at about 6% only utilizing telemedicine in their practice. And it's something that, you know, is here today. And if you're not familiar with it or know something about it um, and maybe not involved with it, you may be left behind uh, because it's something that has low overhead, reduces costs, increases convenience, um, and, you know, people just seem to want it. And how I got into it, you know, just like a lot of things in life um, that are unexpected, um, I kind of got into it for personal reasons originally. I mean, I sort of like techie kind of things and and new um, technology um, that can be utilized to help our practices. But for me, I actually had a heart transplant uh, several years ago. And so part of my practice was trying to make sure that I stayed healthy by not being exposed to a lot of, you know, infectious respiratory problems. And for me to do that, telemedicine fit that quite well. So that's how I started doing it so that though I can be face to face with the patient, I am not in the same room. So therefore I don't have as much risk of getting sick for myself. So tell me about your current telemedicine practice. What are you doing right now? So yeah, so there are different types of telemedicine, and um, some people may not be aware of that, but there's the asynchronous type and the synchronous type. So asynchronous is done via not in real time. So that means that it's something, for example, like teleradiology, where 
you know, there is an image that's taken and then assessed at a later time. So again, not in real time. Synchronous is done in real time. So generally that's done with video conferencing. Um, and if it's facilitated with equipment where you're doing a full physical exam as well. So in that synchronous type, you have the facilitated or non-facilitated type. And the facilitated type is what I do currently. And the way that works is you actually have a facilitator, um, usually a nurse, uh, but you can actually get a license currently to become a telemedicine facilitator as a job. Um, and and it, it differs from state to state what that person's credentials have to be as a facilitator. But essentially, that means you have someone with the patient helping to facilitate the exam um, in itself and the visit. The non-facilitated type would be something like if you were doing Uber or um, sometimes it's called on-demand telemedicine. So that would be where you would just get on a mobile device or your computer and just see a physician or provider in that manner um, and there is not an ENM code billed for that. It's cash pay. Okay, so those are the two different types. Sort of the growth has been more exponential in the non-facilitated type more recently um, because of um, issues with facilitated types and regulations, uh, parity of pay between states, and that kind of thing. So, you know, you're most familiar with this facilitated type telemedicine, so I'd love to know more about your experience. You know, if, since you've seen patients obviously live and through facilitated telemedicine, what would be the experience for someone who's never done it before? Right. So I really love it, and I find that the patients really love it. In fact, my patient satisfaction scores are higher in the telemedicine clinic than in the in-person <laughs> clinic. I'm not All sure right. what that really says. Go. Not sure what that <laughs> says about me, but <laughs> but um, you know, during a facility, facilitated um, telemedicine visit, it seems to go smoother. I can actually see more patients in the same time period during that telemedicine visit than in an in-person visit. And there's some literature out there about that being consistent um, in other clinics as well. So what, you know, I see mostly pediatric patients currently in the telemedicine clinic. And what's great about it is that they love seeing their own like boogers in their nose on a big screen. They love seeing their eardrum on the big screen. And so they tend to sit still for those things because they think it's really cool to see it on the screen. And then the whole family sees it too. And you know, when do you actually get to see your own eardrum or <laughs> inside your own nose? So they really enjoy that. Um, and then they, they like seeing, I think, me on the camera even. And I do things like give them high fives through the camera, oh, wow. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> and so, you know, I think it's novel and that they really enjoy it. And the parents enjoy it, too, because it's very convenient for them. So, you know, the one of the benefits of telemedicine is that you may not have to drive several hours to see us a specialist. So, for example, I do have a success story and I will also utilize both my in-person and telemedicine visits for some of these patients. So there's this one patient of mine that I often share who had been um, coming to our severe asthma clinic and our main campus in person. 
Now, this patient had been intubated three times previously, mm. um, was sort of labeled as risk of death type of asthma, and was missing their once a month severe asthma clinic visits. But realistically, he lives four hours away from our severe asthma clinic and is in a single parent home and with difficulty traveling up here to come to the clinic visits. And so, you know, I think sometimes we as physicians, um, you know, think, well, they're missing their appointments and they're being non-compliant. But in reality, there is real life for them and it's difficult for them to have that access. So instead, since they live near one of my facilitated sites for telemedicine, we had them start coming to that clinic. And now he's quite a success story because he's in high school now. He has not had an exacerbation um, that required an ED visit or, or hospitalization for two years now. And he plays basketball and he corrects his mom on how to use his inhalers because he actually showed up to clinic once a month on a regular basis because of the access and oh. convenience of that for him. Sure. That's yeah. a wonderful story. And yeah. uh, so do you feel like most of your patients that you see right now are more in a remote access setting or a more rural setting? Yeah, I mean, for my particular clinic, the vast majority of them are CMS um, insurance. And the issue is that they don't have a subspecialist to see um, for their allergy or asthma care, or even immunology. Um, and so that tends to be more of the patients I see because of that. Now, is it possible to do allergy in some of the other methods that you mentioned, for example, the non-facilitated? Uh, yes, absolutely, and that does occur. There are several companies out there, as well as uh, most of the EMRs now have a platform that you could utilize if you wanted to incorporate that into your practice. And so um, currently, you know, obviously if you wanted to do skin testing, that isn't something that is routinely done because it's hard to do on yourself, nor do we uh, want that to occur. And so in those patients, I'll send blood work for serum IgE. Um, but I've also had patients where I did that, they would come up to the main clinic um, several hours away from them to receive their first shot, and then I send the rest of the shots down to their um, primary care physician to administer the rest uh, that's closer to their home. So that's one way to do that. Another benefit of seeing um, patients via telemedicine uh, whether it's facilitated or non-facilitated, and probably non-facilitated will work really well in this manner, is that imagine you're in private practice and you know your, your ideal is utilize your slots you have during the day for your patients. But if you have a no-show, it's hard to fill that slot immediately. But if you had telemed incorporated into your practice, someone that's at work would be more likely to pop into that slot to be seen versus finding someone to drive into clinic to come fill that slot. So it's a, another way to utilize slots well in your practice too. So do you feel like there are any limitations um, in terms of the diagnoses that you see? For instance, in asthmatics, how do you follow their spirometry? And Right, so um, there are uh, peripherals available for spirometry. So I do do that in my clinic currently. 
Um, the things that are really boundaries for our particular practice are things that require the procedures. So for example, the skin prick testing, um, you would not be able to do, uh, but you could utilize labs um, in place of that. Um, in addition, food challenges or other oral ingestion challenges would not be something you would want to do in that manner as well uh, to be safe. And then, um, but other than that, um, there aren't really other limitations per se, especially in the facilitated type. Wasn't there a recent paper on the use of telemedicine for penicillin skin testing? There was. There was a paper that was, um, it came out in 2018, and what they did was they were utilizing the telemedicine for antibiotic stewardship. And so to be able to do the um, testing remotely, for example, um, so the physicians were maybe in a clinic outside of the hospital, and so then that testing would occur in the hospital and via telemedicine, they were able to view the testing results and then um, were able to delabel patients in that manner. Wow, that sounds really convenient. Um, and certainly, if anything we can do to extend existing allergy malady services, especially mm -hmm. underneath areas, sounds fantastic. Obviously, you know, we have an existing infrastructure through your hospital that sort of sets us up. You know, you know, Children Healthcare of Atlanta has this existing site and the nurse and that sort of thing. So for the regular garden variety allergist, um, let's say they wanted to get started just to figure out where they could get set up with the training or infrastructure. What choices would they have or where would they get started? Yeah, so um, we actually, as a task force, had come up with um, what I would sort of call a consumer reports, essentially, on several of the companies that currently exist that have different platforms for telemedicine. Um, and you can do this several ways. You can either utilize your EMR currently and um, be able to use that software and platform to see patients through your EMR which most of them have that available currently. You could use a third party um, company and you wouldn't even necessarily have to have your own practice. You could do it as a consultant or even employee of some of these um, existing companies uh, now. And you can do a lot of that most easily as an on-demand type service with them. Um, and. I usually advise that if it's something you kind of want to just trial or try out, that that's maybe a good way to do it so that you're not sort of totally committing mm -hmm. financially to uh, a program that you're going to buy for your own practice. What is the overhead that goes into it? There are um, a lot of costs that vary significantly between companies, depending on kind of what package you would like to utilize. So probably best is checking with the specific companies. Some of those numbers are actually on that um, sort of review we did with the college of a lot of these companies. And it's gonna vary between like how much service you want from them. So some of them will come up with an app for you, design a logo for you, um, help with your scheduling, billing, you know, kind know the whole works versus you know if you just are a consultant and you're just going on for on-demand type visits that's going to be a lot less 
So uh, I'll be honest with you. I've never actually used the telemedicine um, method to connect with doctors. So how, what is the awareness of patients about these options? How do they learn about them? And, you know, let's say I did sign up. Is there a patient just going to be waiting for me? I, I just don't know what the demand is. Yeah, so the demand's actually quite high, more than um, I think we sometimes as physicians even realize. Um, currently, uh, if you ask your friends, many of them have probably already utilized this through their own insurance company. So you can actually go through your insurance company. For example, say you have pink eye, um, and this is the on-demand type. You may pay a fee of $25, see a physician um, who use your, you know, say, smartphones camera to look at the pink eye. They send a prescription for you by e-prescribing to the pharmacy, and, and you're done with your visit. So I could go to my insurance company's website right now and they could connect me? Some of them, yes. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. <laughs> my goodness. But see, that is another reason why we want to be involved in it because we as allergists want to be able to have a voice in how we see our patients and the quality of care, right, for telemedicine and how this moves forward in the future. We don't want necessarily other third parties dictating what that looks like for our patients. Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's mm -hmm. just so... I guess I'm out of the loop. That's the problem. We're not cool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I mean, I guess one other thing is the fact that since it's all computerized, you know, we always think of that personal connection you have with a patient. You know, we're making eye contact. We, you know, you might touch the patient if they're upset about something and provide comfort. You know, we, we sort of think of these personal touches as part of the doctor-patient relationship. Is telemedicine more of like a one-off thing if for these short, quick pink eye things, or do you think you can have meaningful long-term relationships through telemedicine? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great uh, question that is a concern I think that a lot of people have. You know, how do you maintain that doctor-patient relationship? Um, and I think, you know, telemedicine isn't there to necessarily take the place of, you know, all your visits necessarily, um, but it's there to add as a service to patients and also a service that um, patients seem to want. You know, there is a lot of data that patients don't necessarily go to their primary care doctor and they are going more to these urgent care or minute clinic type of visits out of convenience because, you know, we don't have as much anymore the sort of idea of your home doctor who comes and makes house calls. But this is a way you can make a house call, literally, in the patient's home, but not physically have to be there. So, you know, I guess sort of... Um, it will be seen in the future if it's something that people decide that they don't want because they don't feel like they have the connection with their uh, physician. But there are some studies out there showing there is increase in satisfaction because of costs and access is sort of the main reasons that are stated in a lot of these surveys. And that may be something that people want more. And we do live in a society now where we have uh, immediate gratification with Uber, Instacart, Amazon Prime here in Atlanta. You can get something in two hours even. And it's sort of just driven by the wants 
of essentially our patients too. In my clinic, I can speak to, I have seen some of these patients for several years and I do see them as new patients as well as follow up. And they're excited to see me, I'm excited to see them. I know about their family, their siblings, their pets. I know that they are in the school band and their big thing is going to the football games on Friday nights for their high school. So I do feel like I do have a relationship with those patients. And I will say that, um, you know, I've actually gone down to that city, which is where most of my patients are about four and a half hours away. And I spoke to them at their asthma camp. And some of them, I was surprised to say, oh, you're much taller than I thought you were, or yeah, things yeah. like that. But when I showed up there, many of them ran and gave me a hug. Oh, wow. So to them, and maybe even, you know, for some of the generation now, and maybe I'm old now, but they're used to interacting with the world via sort of electronic device. So for them, maybe it isn't so different. And maybe in the future, it's just sort of, the norm. Right. So overall, do you feel like your experience has been as effective as delivering care in a standard outpatient setting? I mean, I do, you know, with the example of the patient I mentioned earlier, I mean, certainly his um, interaction was more successful than we mm -hmm. were uh, for probably three years trying to have him come face to face um, mm -hmm. in the severe asthma clinic. So I do feel that um, there is still success out there for those patients. In fact, there was a paper um, by Jay Portnoy that looked at um, asthma care and the outcomes between face-to-face -face visits and telemedicine. And essentially, um, it was either the same or better. Wow, I had no mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Well, I have to ask this question because I know it's going to come up you know if I'm going to spend a certain amount of hours in the day seeing patients live or telemedicine is it really worth my time i.e. do you actually get compensated equivalent for the work that you put in or you, you can expect like a, a hit in your you know income when you do something like this right so um, the best answer is maybe <laughs> because and the reason I say that is because between state to state, there are different regulations. Currently, most of the states in the U.S. do have parity of pay between um, a face-to-face -face visit versus a telemedicine visit. So if you live in those states that have that parity of pay, then yes, you will be, you will be compensated in an equal manner. Um, now, the other difference is if you do non-facilitated visits, that's sort of a whole different ball game. And I share this in uh, my talk sometimes, but there is this uh, physician who has a blog and I kind of, you know, looked at what his numbers were because he decided one day he was going to get up and just see a bunch of telemedicine patients. And I mean, the non-facilitated type and see how many he sees in one day and how much he would make. And so he did that for 13 hours one day. 13. <laughs> right, nonstop, which oh. no one's really going to do on a regular basis, right? But I kind of took the numbers that he made, and I sort of extrapolated that to, okay, let's, let's just say you did a normal 40-hour work week, and you ha gave yourself five weeks vacation. 
what would that come out to? And again, this is without any fees or you know, upfront costs to the telemedicine itself. But with those hours and what he made just with that day, extrapolate out to a year would have been over $400,000 that he oh, would have made. Oh, you're kidding mm-hmm. me. No. That is unbelievable. I mean, again, that is not with, you know, the fees and your right. upfront costs and some of the other stuff. So it's a very rough estimate, but still, it was very surprising to me, I'll say. Sure. Yeah. Wow. 13 hours. That guy was a machine. Let me tell <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you go to the bathroom? I'm just kidding. Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. So... I've been reading a lot about this future of work automation stuff. Certainly, there are ideas that artificial intelligence can get to a point where they could read chest x-rays and CT scans, right? Mm -hmm. So that's direct competition with radiology. Do you think there's a dark future in allergy where blood testing and a questionnaire can replace an allergist? Uh, no, I mean, I don't. And it kind of harkens back to the patient doctor relationship, whether that's in face to face or over a TV screen, there is, you know, something about human nature where they sometimes they just want a person there that they can explain things to. And I don't think the artificial intelligence in that manner would replace a person. Um, so no, I don't think so, but I do think, you know, for physicians, we will be short and are short uh, physicians currently. And so for us to be in multiple places at once or to be able to give patients access and better care, this is a potential way to do that. All right. Is there anything you think everyone else should know about telemedicine? Uh, I mean, this has been really interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, I think it's just something what I find when I go around is people have a hard time, you know, they're interested in it, but they're not sure how to get past that point. You know, how do I actually start doing it? So um, there's a lot of work being done and between both our uh, national organizations, um, there's a lot of material and help and tips on both um, those sites to help you in that manner. And you can always call your EMR and just ask too. All right. Well, thank uh, you, Jen. Yes, thank you so yeah, much for, for coming. This, this was, was so, so fun. interesting. Yeah, this was a fascinating podcast. I was just listening completely, wrapped with attention. I'm sure that all of our <laughs> listeners are. It's uh, well, good. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. And and so, uh, if you really enjoyed this podcast, I just want to remind everyone that uh, there is ratings on iTunes and so on. Please give us a good review. And we are always interested in your feedback or corrections or suggestions. Uh, the email to reach one of us is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not for medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professional services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for Tiva. Dr. Kangara has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca. And Dr. Shi was on an advisory board for Tiva and Takeda.
the ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that might be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee was on an advisory board for Tiva. Dr. Kalangarda has received consulting fees from AstraZeneca, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for AZBI Shire and has done research for AIMUN, DBV, Shire, and Regeneron.